Welcome to a special episode of The Story Coterie. As your audio home for modern fables and slipstream flash fiction, we believe that great stories come in small packages. We're once again packaging three of our tales together for your listening pleasure. So if you're looking for a longer literary fix or want to get caught up on fiction you may have missed, now you can enjoy three fantastic tales around one theme. If you like what you hear, you can read these stories and many more online at storycoat.com. Today, we're sharing our series of stories about the most human of emotions. Hey, Jealousy. We just can't stop writing about being wronged. As the killers say, Jealousy, turning saints into the sea. First up in our Green with Envy tales is a story inspired by the Sam Bisbee tune, Cubicle Love Song. In Temporary Insanity, an office romance becomes uncomfortably complicated. And now, it's time to lean in and listen. Temporary Insanity Bisbee's bottom itched hot with carpet burns, and her shoulder was scratched pink, courtesy of the keyboard tray. She was happily rife with bruises and bites and, in fact, dressed more conservatively now than before the misadventures began, lest she spike the curiosity of human resources. But her flushed cheeks and steam-curled hair, golden red like the copper town for which she was named, were hard to hide. Things started innocently enough— They were just two misplaced journalists who the unfortunate job market had driven corporate. After too many days of compartmentalized copywriting, Bisbee wrote a fabulous and not repeatable filthy joke on Babbitt's proofing sheet. This led to a flurry of dirty little post-it notes, sexy suggestions of things only English majors would do to each other, with footnotes on how positions may vary according to AP or Chicago style. Soon, those long gray days were broken by stolen moments before and after, and a few times during, office hours. Bisbee lived for the pressure of the water cooler against the small of her back, the white tap releasing a stream down her thigh, the acrid taste of company coffee on his mouth. The department morale meetings during which she slipped off her shoe under the conference table, trying to keep poker-faced, as her bare toes worked up his chair. It wasn't just last night under her desk, or the elevator, bathroom stall, or electrical room. She knew Babbitt had true affection. He brought a mirror to entertain her lonely beta fish, Blue. Among salacious text messages, there were the sweet ones like, You're the bee's knees. And he took a light hand editing her, writing, Please, and sorry, in the margins. The best was yet to come. The two were booked for a copy-editing conference in Vegas. Bisbee dreamed of the desert and its neon signs bright with electric sex. She craved nights that went long past five, free cocktails to lower her last few inhibitions, and finally getting to use a bed. Tuesday, after Vietnamese takeout, Babbitt confided, I called the hotel and made arrangements. For adjoining rooms. Bisbee was so excited she stabbed him with a plastic fork. The tines broke against his khaki-clad muscled thigh, but she still kissed the spot an apology later. 
Though Bisbee generally kept a blank and unsentimental workspace, the navy envelope containing her plane ticket was tea-pinned lovingly right above the fishbowl. It was a company function, after all, and Bisbee was a valued employee. Her manager even hired a temp to cover the workload during her absence. Bisbee had two days to train her. From day one, they were enemies. Her name was Iskra or Ilanka or something else foreign— Bisbee refused to learn it, really, as the temp was younger, prettier, and skinnier. Every seat swiveled when the temp walked past. She received several invitations to Friday's potluck, cajoled that she didn't even have to bring anything. The temp leaned forward to ask something, and her skirt hitched up, showing a slice of black garter. It reminded Bisbee of the stockings she purchased specifically for the hotel— and made her green that she wasn't the type to wear them every day. Bisbee took in the temp's cat-shaped eyes, full bottom lip, breast high and tight under a v-neck. She blew off the request to borrow her style guide. And don't feed my fish while I'm gone, Bisbee warned. The next day, she resolved friendliness. It was Bisbee and Babbitt who were going to Vegas after all, and envy was so unbecoming. She came in at 7.46, hoping to rendezvous between the reams of white and canary yellow. She was pleased to see steaming coffee on Babbitt's desk. Bisbee tried the door to the copy room, but it wouldn't budge. She could hear the whine of the archaic printer warming up. Several thumps followed. She knocked. Babbitt, she whispered. Hey, Babbitt Rabbit, are you in there? The door was locked. Returning to her cubicle, Bisbee shifted from confusion to panic. A fresh cup of coffee sat on the temp's desk, too. Bisbee did the only thing she knew to do in times of crisis. She cleaned. She pulled the guts out of the latest edition of Webster's and put it in every other living bit of paper in the confidential shredding bin. She tossed her mug and fern. She carried blue over to the coffee island and turned on the tap. The helpless beta slid into the drain, and Bisbee pulsed the disposal. She was wiping down her desk when the temp resurfaced. The girl adjusted her skirt and smiled. Hey, what happened to your fish? He died. Bisbee betrayed no emotion. They both looked at the empty spot where the little bowl once sat. The small corkboard was empty, too. But, but where's my ticket? Bisbee spat at the temp. It was right here. What ticket? Oh, come on, shouted Bisbee. You've been here 24 hours and you've christened the copy machine and taken my trip to Vegas. Bisbee reached over the divider and pulled the girl's shiny black hair. Hard. The temp shrieked. Babbitt came running down the aisle. What the hell? My ticket, she repeated blankly. Oh, for God's sake, said Babbitt. I have it right here. I was just checking seat assignments to see if we were together. He regarded the empty cubicle and shook his head. We are. Bisbee regarded Babbitt. He had left his pen uncapped, and a red stain bloomed on his pocket. He looked like any and every other guy in the office, in a blue Oxford and khakis. She surveyed the gray-blue maze of cubicles, took the navy envelope, tore off the top ticket, and left.
There are better boxes to be had. An airplane seat, a lavatory, a hotel room, each square self-contained. There is a place for every tiny coffee pot and cup. A precision and beauty to the arrangement of single-serving soap. And there are banks of slot machines, endless glistening rows, making up bright new cubicle farms. Thank you for listening to The Story Coterie. We've got two more tales of jealousy to share. Next up is Hearts of Palm. In this short story, after a vegan couple breaks up, the cafe where they work sees unplanned menu changes. And now, it's time to listen. Hearts of Palm Once she was compassionate, loving, and kind. Once we found a speckled mouse in the bulk food section of the co-op, Tuesday scooped it in the palm of her hand and deposited it safely in the green median of the parking lot. By the time we'd finished shopping, it had only made it about two feet before getting squashed. Tuesday knelt down, fished out a box of organic quinoa, emptied it into her tote, and fashioned the cardboard into a makeshift coffin. She dug into the grass and buried the mouse right there in the median. The dirt was still under her fingernails when I knew for sure that I loved her. Tuesday's the reason I started coming to Tinderbite for a smoothie every morning, and the reason I took a job there slinging kale salads, even though I have my MFA. She's the reason why I said I didn't eat meat or eggs or dairy, and why I became what I said I already was. For Tuesday, there's already so much pain in the world, she can't stand hurting another living thing. Except for me. The guy was a regular. He'd ordered from the raw half of the menu, usually drank coconut water, and tipped well. He had a man bun. I should have known I was done for from the time he invited Tuesday to his hot yoga class. Great, she'd said. We'll check it out. Customers were always trading recipes and classes and bicycles, so I didn't think much of it. But we didn't check it out. She did. At first, Tuesday came to my place after class, sweat slicked and sexy, smelling of nog chomp and salt. And it was great. After a few weeks, though, she came over less, saying she needed a good shower and sleep in her own bed before her early shift at Tenderbite. The guy, I can't even say his name, started coming into the cafe every morning, and Tuesday started going to hot yoga four nights a week, and I still didn't get it. One night, I packed a bag with her favorites. Hearts of palm tacos, spicy cabbage slaw, and a growler of IPA. And I bicycled to the yoga studio to surprise her. I thought that we could skinny dip in the river like we did when we started dating and picnic on the bank. When I got there, class was just letting out. And I watched through the window. Sweat-drenched women filed out, saying namaste after namaste to the guy as if he truly ignited some divine spark in them instead of having them stew in their own juices for 70 minutes. Tuesday was the last student to leave. Through the glass, I could see her lean into the guy, his hand go to her hip, and his teeth nip her neck as she giggled. It stunk. Everyone stunk. Not of incense or enlightenment, 
just the terrible smell of hot, wet flesh. That reminded me we're all made of meat. I left the takeout box of hearts of palm tacos there on the sidewalk. I don't even think she knew I was there. But the next morning, after the breakfast rush, she said we needed to talk. So we did. Well, she talked and I listened. I just sat there listening as she explained how it wasn't working out between us, without even mentioning the guy. He didn't come to the cafe that morning, which made it even worse that they'd conspired he shouldn't get his coconut water the same day she and I were having the talk. And all I could think of was three things. One, even with my degree, I had no clue how long it would take to find another job. Two, that I could not take the flatulent stink of cruciferous veggies one more day. And three, though I hated her, I loved her too. After that, I started bringing a flask into work with me. On Monday, I added cow's milk to the cashew and sweet potato pasta dish that passes for vegan mac and cheese. Tuesday, I slipped egg whites into the tofu scramble. Wednesday, it was beef broth in the miso. Thursday, I just swigged whiskey. It was my day off, after all, and I was still so sad. But Friday, I got serious and slipped liquid that had once pooled in the styrofoam under a raw steak from my flask into that guy's beet salad. He ate it without notice or incident, and I still wanted to punch him in the face. I want to take my heart out with a spoon to stop it from hurting. I want to take my bloody heart and bury it in the co-op parking lot, next to the coffin of the mouse she loved more than me. Sometimes I want her to say she's sorry and that she wants to come back just so I can tell her no, and sometimes just so I can say yes and be the one to bite her neck again. Sometimes I want to burn tender bite to the ground. Most nights now, when my flask is empty and I'm still sending out resumes, I cool down. When I do, what I want is to meet someone new who likes beer and barbecue, who is afraid of mice and wants me to protect her, who will love me more. Thanks again for listening. Our final tale is Written on the Skin, in which an exceptional tattooed lady draws a true admirer. It's once again time to lean in and listen. Written on the Skin We had a lot in common, Lola and me. We joined the ten and one the same year when we were both still kids. But the management seemed to neither notice nor mind. We each got paid $150 a week, better than almost anybody else in the company. At least four times what she'd make working in a clerical pool, Lola had said. We both liked rock candy. And like the pressure cooker I'd seen at the World's Fair, we both had a steam release. Lola had laughed when I told her, but it was true. Just the way that a salesman's thumb pressed the regulator weight on the nozzle next to the lid handle, we'd each found a way to let out some of what made us different so that we wouldn't blow up. Neither of us slept much. The Parks Maximus American Circus and Museum of Wonders wasn't such a bad place. 
I got three squares and a bed for March to November, and I made enough money to hold me over on the off-season. There were rules for Parks Maximus employees, mostly about fraternization between equestrians and ballet girls with the likes of us. But the born curiosities kept to themselves, like the wolfman and the half-lady. The management treated them pretty well because they'd be hard to replace. The maid curiosities kept with the maid. The novelty acts kept to themselves. And the gaffed acts. Well, those were just cons. I fooled the audience, but none of the rest of us would play a hand of cards with them. There were folks in the circus who were jerks and folks who were decent enough, just like any job anywhere. And then there was Lola. She was so kind, it was hard to reconcile her sweet face with the illustrated rest of her. Lola wore a floor-length silk robe in the spring and a velvet robe in the fall. Underneath, she wore a green satin bathing costume that ended about four inches above her knees. Among all ten attractions in the tent, Lola was the one that seemed to most amaze. More than the blind young snake charmer, more than the bearded lady, more than the two pygmies from a faraway pagan land, even more than what I could show them. Once she untied her robe, the tent fell silent. If across her shoulders was tattooed the Last Supper, folks would see the eyes of Christ regarding them with tender mercy. If down one arm was a soldier erect in our nation's flag, what any man who'd ever served would see himself and his fallen friends. Housewives saw themselves in their own in the Madonna and child. Little boys saw themselves in Tom Mix on her thigh. Lola's body showed people the truth about themselves. Every inked inch of her a wonder. Now on my platform, I'd hold a bare bulb in my hands and folks would watch it incandesce at my touch. I'd roll up my sleeves to show there was no wire nor trick to it. The bulb would grow brighter the more I pressed, casting the rest of the tent in shadows, and nobody but Lola and me in the light. I'd kissed her once. It was the day she turned 19. Her silk robe had slipped off one decorated shoulder, and I couldn't help myself. When I kissed the collection of dark stars, the black outline of a crescent moon appeared on her shoulder. Nobody got too wise to Lola's abilities. We weren't in any one city longer than a week, and Lola traveled with a proper tattooing machine, sort of an adaptation of Edison's electric pen. There was a reservoir for ink and a tubular handle with a little gauge and a reciprocal needle. On Sunday nights, when the show was dark, we could hear the hum of the electromotor as Lola passed it across her skin, transforming old portraits into new. Now what I knew was that there was no ink in it at all. All Lola needed was to be touched, and her illustrations would tell the story. It was impossible for her to lie. Back on my cot, electrons danced between my fingertips. As I thought about Lola, the camp lights would ebb and glow. I could even make her worry needle stop, if I put my mind to it. One Sunday, I went to see if she needed help. I could be the one at least to pass the empty needle across the apostles on her back. Lola handed me the armature. She was quiet just swinging one dear decorated foot to the needle whir and eating rock candy. Quiet was fine. I knew her and she knew me. And after a while, other faces appeared and other flowers grew and other flags waved on Lola. And when I looked down at her lovely leg, I saw a face I knew. The blind Indian was drawn above her ankle just as clear and true as a photograph. As she flexed her little foot, he raised his reed and the illustrated basket open. Instead of a cobra uncurling to the imaginary music, 
a flurry of hearts and stars emerged. They drifted up the curve of her cap and under her robe where I could not see. Then Lola's own silhouette, which I'd recognized in any form, arose from the basket, each fine finger curled and coaxing the drawn Indian. The real Lola was blushing. That much I could still see. Her rosy hue cast across every story she wore. The sparks flew from my fingertips radiant green. My hair stood on end and even my woolen socks pulled away from my feet. The nearest town was almost a mile out from the field where our tents were staked. And still, all those people in their regular homes had their lights go out that night. All those folks, awake in the deepest dark and quiet, not sure what was going to happen next. The Story Coterie is produced by Candace L. Colomb, written and recorded at home in the good company of sentimental skate keys and letters never sent. To learn more about Story Coat and its fables, visit storycoat.com. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-O-T-E dot com. We're so pleased that you joined us for today's tale, and we hope to have you back for more. Now, before next Tuesday, take a few minutes to leave us a voice message and let us know how we're doing or what we could do to make the podcast even better. Use the message option at anchor.fm slash storycoat, and we'll be so happy to hear from you. As always, thank you for being part of our coterie please consider sharing, sponsoring, or supporting our podcast. Until our next episode, our wish for you is to just let those bad memories wash out, like the lip print on his shirt. Take care. <laughs>